Welcome to Number One Fan Club, a podcast about all things power pop, shoegaze, Brit pop, all those things that me and my buddy Craig love, sort of the jangle and the hook. Craig, how are you? Good. Very good, Sean. How are you, man? Doing great. This podcast called Number One Fan Club, which is an homage to a couple of our favorite bands, Big Star with their first album called Number One Record and Teenage Fan Club. Both good bands, right? Love it. I think it's perfect. Yeah. And what we wanted to do really is is look back at the origins of post-Beatles and the whole labels, call it whatever you want, but that post-Beatles sound, that continuation, really don't need to spend any time talking about the Beatles. We'll reference them all the time in this podcast, but it's not like we're going to spend a lot of time on the Beatles, but really everything that happened after the Beatles. I can't think of a better place to start than the band Badfinger because they really are the bridge. If you talk about all the bands like Cheap Trick and Big Star and on down the line, Teenage Fan Club, really when the Beatles ended, the bridge was Badfinger. Absolutely. You and I both love Badfinger. I'm going to jump right in here. The band itself, they were originally called the Ivies. They'd been around for a while and they were actually had the distinction of being the first group signed to Apple Records in 68. After a couple of singles, they decided on a name change. So with the support of the Beatles and their management and others around them, they came up with a new name. The Ivies, I don't know if it's just not a very cool name. It was outdated. Maybe it sounded too much like the Beatles. They decided on the name Badfinger, which was actually taken from a song with a little help from my friends. That was the original title was Badfinger Boogie. So here they go, off and running. They've got Paul McCartney writing a song for them called Come and Get It, also producing the song. They went on a run there. They had three straight top 10 hits, international hits at that with Come and Get It, No Matter What, and Day After Day. And then a fourth song in that same time period, Baby Blue, which rested just outside of the top 10 at number 14. Huge success in that 70 to 72 time frame. Three really good albums, Magic Christian Music, No Dice, It's Straight Up, and then four mega hits, Todd Rundgren producing one of their albums. They've got George Harrison producing Day After Day. Again, they had McCartney's input. All of this happening seems like everything's fallen into place for a band to go on a long run. Oh, no doubt. It's, it's remarkable. In a short amount of time, I did some uh, digging because I was just curious based off of the hits they had alone. Those four hits were covered 214 times. By 214, artists have officially covered those songs, all four of those songs being released between November of 1970 and December of 71. They were definitely poised to be the band. That's right, Craig. You know, you look at what happened with Badfinger in the 1970 to 72 timeframe. They released the three albums, Magic Christian Music, No Dice, and Straight Up. And those albums actually did pretty well on the charts as well. Magic Christian Music peaked at 55, No Dice at 28, Straight Up at 31. So they were doing pretty well on the album side also, but it was a string of hits right out of the gate. They have three top 10 hits with Come and Get It, No Matter What, and Day After Day, which, by the way, was produced by George Harrison. And in addition, they're kind of becoming the Apple house band. They're playing on John Lennon's Imagine album. 
They played on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. They recorded with Ringo Starr. So they're really getting a lot of work. And in this time period, also, they write this song called Without You that did okay, didn't it, Craig? Not for them, though, but for someone else. (laughs) Absolutely. Nielsen turned that into a, a certifiable hit, right? And that, going back to being covered, is the one song that's been covered more than any other song. And it's debatable. I mean, it's it's because of Nilsson, right? More so than it is Badfinger, which is just regrettable because their version of it is just beautiful. But yeah, that that song alone has been covered 149 times. And you think about Nilsson had the success. And it's a funny story because apparently he was at a party, heard the song. He thought it was a Beatles song. When he found out it was not a Beatles song, he decided he was going to cover it. The rest is history. And then Mariah Carey covers it 20 years later. And it becomes an international hit for her as well. So right. you think about all that, Craig. You think about the start that they had right out of the gate. It'd be hard to find a lot of bands that had a better beginning than that when you think about the greatest band in the world. You're backing their albums up as solo artists. You're on their label. You're cranking out top 10 hits. And then 1973 comes around. Apple Records folds. Then you get reports of mismanagement. There was a period of time at their peak where in an 11-month period, it was reported that one of the band members made $5,000. Wow. The most successful guy in the band made eight grand during that time. So you've got your classic lineup of Pete Ham, Mike Gibbons, Tom Evans, and Joey Molland, the years of 70, 73 timeframe. And then everything starts to fall apart and they have to go look for another record label. They go to Warner Brothers. And then they get tied up with Warner Brothers, not because of their fault, but because their manager. But Warner Brothers ends up suing Badfinger as well as the manager. And everything just starts to unravel at that point. And then you have Pete Ham committing suicide in 1975 and, and blaming it in a suicide note partially on the poor management. And it's just it's a tragic story that you could never predict. If you had written all that out, you would think, OK, this is a band that's going to be successful for 20 or 30 years. And even if they break up, all of these individual guys will go on to successful solo careers and none of that happened. Right. That's the remarkable thing. When you listen to their, when you look at their catalog and you listen to their songs and you see where they're positioned at at, at an early stage throughout their first three albums, it is baffling that they they weren't that next big band, that they didn't get the level of support, I think, that, that one would have expected too. So I don't know. That's that's a big debate. Yeah. And what do you think? You know, because then again, they go on to do a couple albums with Warner Brothers. They'd make one more label jump, but they never gained traction again. In fact, I don't even know. I, they definitely didn't have another top 40 hit. I'm not even sure of any of their albums after the third album with the classic lineup. I don't think any other album even broke the top 100. It, it's just like they completely disappeared, even though they continued for a while. And then even in 1983, to add to the tragedy, Tom Evans commits suicide. And you think about that. You think about from 1970 to 1983, 13 years, two suicides and all of the things that happened to them. And they just never could recover. And I know, Craig, we've talked about this. I mean, other bands have emerged from tragedy, Allman Brothers being an example. There's so many different theories that you and I have talked about, and maybe you can chime in with one or two of yours. And I have a couple of theories as well. I mean, what do you think happened here? Because they clearly had a good start. It's as if those last 
four or five albums never existed. I don't know if necessarily being on Apple Records and having that affiliation with the label, with the band, with with the band, that being the Beatles, having the Beatles contribute to songwriting and production, I don't know if that necessarily helped them. Could have hurt them. Maybe they didn't have the identity um, that they that they really deserved. The way I look at it is growing up, when I first discovered those albums, I didn't realize that those songs were on those albums. I knew of the band name. I knew the songs, but I didn't do the association of, of those songs with that band. Whereas with the Beatles, you know, you know their songs. You know with the Stones. You know, Gimme Shelter came from the Stones. Here's a band that is really more known for singles, and that's their reputation. And those so- singles are very Beatlesque. Let's be honest. But when you listen to the album, they're so much more than that. They really are. And so I, I don't know. And when you're telling me where the album's charted, definitely not bad. I think you said what No Dice was probably their best charting album in, in in the 30s. That's not bad. But at the same token, when you listen to the album, it deserved more than that. I don't know if being on that label and having that association and following the, the biggest band of all time, I don't know if that might have served to their detriment. I tend to agree with you. And I think there's a couple of theories I have, but that one to me seems to be the one that is probably most plausible. The connection was just too tight to the Beatles. They even sounded so much like the Beatles. I mean, if you played Come and Get It right now for someone who didn't know about Badfinger, they would go, oh, that... I." I don't know if I've ever heard that Beatles song before. And, you know, one of the uh, Tony Visconti famed producer was quoted as saying something to the effect of sometimes he had to look over the control board into the studio and make sure it wasn't John and Paul down there singing. And and you hear it time and time again. And I don't even think they were trying. It was just natural. They just naturally sounded a lot like the Beatles. I mean, Come and get it. it. Sounds so much like Paul McCartney. There are songs right. where I listen to and I go, wow, that kind of sounds like John Lennon. And it just had that sound to it. But you're right. Maybe that connection, people needed a break from it. I actually, there's a book, a really good book. I haven't read all of it, just bits and pieces. But like a lot of the books I own, Craig, I, I own them, but never finish them. <laughs> but I read <laughs> parts of it. But it's called You Never Give Me Your Money by Peter Doggett. And it's about the history of Apple Records. He makes a comment in the book that I thought pretty much nailed it. And it's the best thing that I've heard is that coming out of the 60s, the Beatles were everything and they were the biggest and the best. But when they finished and they were over, they were kind of last year's fashion. And now you were moving on to other bands and other sounds. And you still had a couple of bands out there that were hanging on to that sound like Electric Light Orchestra, Badfinger, Raspberries. What he says is it was as if the Beatles were the hangover from a decade that the world was already embarrassed to remember. And I thought that was a fascinating point of view. Really might sum it up. In addition to all the, the management woes and the fact that Apple Records disbanded all of those things is that they were just too closely tied. And maybe if they would have sheltered the storm, so to speak, gone on and not had the tragedies they had and started to develop as an artist into the mid to late seventies, maybe it'd be a totally different story. And we wouldn't even be talking about this right now. It would be Badfinger was a huge success. 
Well, they say timing is everything, and maybe that's just it. That that quote really nails it. It does. I think it was timing. I think it was the a, a product of the Beatles. As long as the Beatles would have kept going, people would have held on because they evolved with every single album. And so you you felt like you were getting something new with them. And with Badfinger, you were kind of getting the early era sound of the Beatles for the most part. I, I contend they they have a lot more depth to them than people probably think they do. And if you listen to those first three albums, you'll hear it. You listen to their last four albums, you'll definitely hear it. They were just kind of cursed in a way. I hate using that term, but um, that really nails it. Yeah, I think so. You know, now we listen to all these bands and, and you and I were at a concert recently. In fact, right before the shutdown, we went to see Sloan and yep. that's one of your favorite bands. I, I'm convinced, I think you know every song they've ever recorded. <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of Sloan, but I was, I'm nowhere near your category. But during their live set, I leaned over to you and said, it, it just never occurred to me before, but I said, wow, they remind me a lot of Badfinger. And I think we could, you know, you talked about the cover versions of songs, be it Jellyfish or other bands that have, have covered their stuff through the years. They definitely have influenced a lot of bands, but you don't really hear a lot of people name check Badfinger. You hear, you hear Big Star all the time for, for good reasons. We're going to talk about them on a separate podcast, but you don't really hear many people talk about Badfinger. You don't. I had to dig to find quotes. I really had to dig to find people that reference them as either an influence or just something in reference to, to Badfinger. It was pretty, but there were several. I, I was able to find anywhere from Jane Weedland of the Go-Go's, Glenn Tilbrook of Squeeze, Jody Stevens, of course, of Big Star, all were big fans. I, I was impressed with a couple of uh, quotes in particular. Cyril Jordan of the Flaming Groovies loved Badfinger, loved hearing that. I'm a big fan of that band. The Bay City Rollers, Duncan Farr, the lead singer. He, in fact, he said next to the Beatles and Elton John, that was his favorite band. I mean, that's a huge compliment. Uh, he actually wrote a song called Pete Ham as a tribute because he was so enamored with his songwriting. So, but the, I think the best quote I was able to find, and it makes sense because it comes from Robin Zander of, of Cheap Trick, and he nails it. He really does. He says, I think Badfinger was the epitome of that type of music before the power pop term was coined. And you've said that to me after the song show, and you're right. Think of a think of a song that epitomizes power pop. What is that song? No matter what. In fact, I, I told you a couple of weeks ago. You know, when I when I told my wife that we were going to be doing a podcast on on power pop, she kind of looked at me funny. And the first thing that came to my mind was I sang the chorus of No Matter What, and she goes, "Oh, okay, I get it." And actually, I even read the author Michael Chabon wrote an article on Big Star and Power Pop. And he even said in that article that no matter what was the first Power Pop song ever recorded. And it is, I, I can't think of many songs better. That is a perfect three minute pop song. And it really does really epitomize what I love about Power Pop. It, it gets right in there. Great uh, hook, good chorus. And it's just a beautiful, amazing song. In wrapping up here, they did a couple of albums after that. They soldiered on, Craig, after the, the the tragedy of the first suicide. They did some albums, and they're really good. The self-titled Badfinger album and Wish You Were Here came out in 74. I've listened to them. 
not nearly as much as the first three. They're really good. One day we need to have a podcast on part two of Badfinger and just talk about those albums that no one's really familiar with because there are no hit singles on those albums and they did not chart. They barely cracked the top 200. But from my years, what I'm listening to, they're really good albums. And I think they were starting to expand more into country, even some harder rock sounds. And I think we should devote a podcast to that. I agree. I, you said this one point, and I think it's the perfect statement for Badfinger. They're not capable of writing a bad song. So it, it might not be an album of caliber of like a no dice or straight up, but those latter day albums are really good. To, and it would give me a, a chance to rediscover each of those albums and dive a little bit deeper. So that would be a lot of fun. I'm going to put us both on the spot here. I've had the advantage of thinking about it a little bit. I want to throw out top two songs as we wrap up here. Top two favorite songs all time, Badfinger. And it's really not fair to try to pick one. For me, it would be, I love Dear Angie. I think that's just such a cool song. And I love the, I love the chorus in that. I love the harmonies. And then number one for me, without a doubt, it's not even close, is no matter what. In fact, no matter what would be in my, you know, if you were retiring jerseys, if you're retiring songs all time from the power pop, no matter what is hanging from the rafters. It is one of the greatest songs. So Dear Angie and No Matter What. All right, now I'm going to put you on the spot, Craig. What are your two favorite Badfinger songs? Well, it's interesting. Of the three first albums, my least favorite album would be the first one. Uh, and the song off that album that I love the most is actually Crimson Ship. I love that song. And and while I think Straight Up is, might probably be their best album, my second favorite song would be off of No Dice, and it's No Matter What. It's just perfect from start to finish. So, Well, to make us both feel justified in that, even Def Leppard covered it, so we know it has to be a good song. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if Joe Elliott loves it, you know we're in the right category. Craig, this has been a lot of fun. We're going to, the next one we're going to tackle, we got to go Big Star next, right? I mean, you go from Badfinger being the bridge from the Beatles to everything after that, and then Big Star's right up next at 1972, I believe, with number one record. So we'll cover Big Star next, and then we'll just keep moving down the line. We're going to talk about Raspberries at some point, Cheap yep. Trick, Teenage Fan Club. Talk about some other bands that may be 99.9% of the population has never heard of, but they should. Big Star is the perfect transition to me because there are several cuts. If you listen to the early Badfinger albums, there are several songs that were cut straight for Big Star, obviously was big fans of uh, Badfinger. It was evident, and I think it's the perfect transition. And they were right in line with one other, other two. We're talking a separation of, what, two or three years? So I think, and we love that band so much. So I think it's just the perfect foundation of uh, our love of power pop. All right, Craig, here is number one fan club signing off for episode one. And Craig, look forward to doing this again soon. Thanks so much and take care.